0: Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest today has just released his fifth album for Deutsche Grammophon. Peter Gregson is such a multifaceted musician. He's a soloist, composer of film music, remixes, music for video games, dance scores. I hardly know where to begin. But here we go. Peter, congrats on the new album and welcome. I'm so happy to have you here on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. Thank you. It's
1: nice to be here.
0: <laughs> That's the standard answer. Yeah. Well done.
1: Oh, you've got you've got a tick, you know, you've got this tick list in front of you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know. But once we get the introduction over, now we can get to the nitty-gritty stuff. And I yep. must say Listening to your new album and researching you over the last few days, I have learned a lot. I tell you, horn players do not know what vocoders and and WASP synthesizers. So thank you for opening this whole new world. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But the main thing is that we explain to our wonderful podcast listeners what Mm. your new album is all about. And I, to be honest, didn't even know how to pronounce patina. I thought maybe it was patina, like retina, but it's patina, right? right. Yes, yes. And tell us what this means. I looked it up in the dictionary because, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure of that either. Yeah. (laughs) I'm doing really well so far. No, well,
1: that's, that's the whole thing. I think on one hand, I've kind of always wanted to, when you're naming a piece, I really long for the days of like purely functional titling. You know, you think of Beethoven or Mozart, Bach, they don't have to write these grand poetic titles like, you know, the the reflection of sun on moor. It's like, no, it's Sonata in B.
0: Opus 25, uh, yeah. yeah. Allegro.
1: <laughs> you know, and you know where you stand with an Allegro. <laughs> but there, I think what the difference, you know, the kind of the pre-romantic era and then the post- 20th century kind of seriousness era. Pre-all of that, it was very functional. It was like everything was hit to a deadline. It was very, you know, functional titling. And I, yeah, like I really long for functional titling. And then, you know, the sort of romantic tone poem, the, the sort of lyric thing happens, and then and then it gets a bit more serious again through the 20th century, the sort of second Viennese Schoolborough. And then and then we've come out the other side into this sort of hybrid of, you know, sort of the expectation of obtuse or, or really complex titlings. So whether it's to tell people what to think or not to tell them what to think, but make them think that you're being told what to think and how to feel. And all, but, you know, kind of little sort of micro poem titles. and And I just, I really like things that don't tell you what to, you know, tell you what it is. And, so patina the patina of something is the basically the the wearing of life on an object so in, in a kind of chemical sense the patina of copper is when copper oxidizes right so you think of you know, buildings which have got a kind of copper exterior. And then...
0: Yeah, French, French horns do the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And
1: they get that lovely green kind of rust.
0: <laughs> lovely. Yeah. It goes all over your hands Oh, I'm as sure.
1: Well. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote a, an album about the rust on a horn. No, um,
0: but it's that. <laughs> That's your next one. Yeah. That's part
1: two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's this idea that, like, for a, a leather jacket, the peak moment for a leather jacket as a leather jacket... <laughs> It's the day before you wear it, you know it's pristine it's immaculate, but it's really uncomfortable and then, after like a decade of wearing it, it's kind of shaped to your body it 's shaped to your life and it's crinkled and it's creased and it's it's worn and it's kind of positive decay you know it's like a it's a good thing or a pair of shoes, like the best time for a pair of shoes is the day before you wear them, but they're uncomfortable. you have to wear them a lot, and then they they're, they're peak comfort you know and, I feel like at the moment you know we live in this age of sort of Instagram perfection everything's got to be pristine all the time It's like well that's not real that's not human it's not something you can easily relate to you know you think of as humans we age we decay we you know we get gray hairs or we you know we our faces change everything changes and that's a positive thing you know it's like life,
0: positive decaying. I like that phrase. Yeah, but, it's, uh,
1: <laughs> but I think I think it's it's something that is natural and it's human and it's relatable, you know. But if you look at art, twentieth you know, digital art, whether it's an MP3 or whether it's a, a film on screen, there's no impact on the relationship with it, you know. So if you listen to a, a vinyl a million times. It's going to decay. It's going to get pops and crackles and it's wear down. A tape will do the same. An MP3 listened to a billion times is still just as minty box fresh as it was if you only listened to it once. And that, I feel, is a, it's a at a certain level, it's quite a complex relationship that you, you know, how do you relate to something that doesn't age? How do you relate to something that doesn't decay? How do you relate to something that doesn't Kind of have a life cycle, and I wanted to write this album to. I mean, obviously, it doesn't actually physically decay as you listen to it. I mean, that would be really cool, but it doesn't. But I wanted the sounds on the album to have a texture. I didn't want it to sound like, you know, the the sound of a recorded cello halfway back in a concert hall, very polished and kind of silky smooth and everything rounded off the edges and you know I wanted it to sound like it is here you know with the microphone right up close and all the scuffs and scrapes of the the bow on the string and yeah the the kind of age the sound having a kind of a life.
0: So you decayed it before it could decay itself by the sounds of things. Yeah. Well, I the think- Decay sounds so negative, but I, I know what you mean. You're trying to make it so... It's like making it accessible, having sounds that we recognise. I even heard... What's in there, a vacuum cleaner or something?
1: <laughs> uh, um, probably, probably a very expensive synthesiser, but yeah, they sound... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but there's one, well, but you said in, in one of the interviews I heard you speak about it is that you like it when some outside sounds yeah. get mixed up in yeah. your music.
1: Yeah, so actually there's um one of the studios that we recorded. So I, I go through this sort of lengthy process of what's called reamping. So, you know, I write music with quite a lot of synthesizers or, or electronic elements. And, and, you know, normally you plug them in straight into the computer or the recording stuff. And they're, electronic or they're, you know, analog synthesizers. But with your performing hat on, you you play differently in a different space. You know, if you're in a small room, you play differently. You respond differently to to your instrument in a a different room. And so I've been reamping synthesizers since just before this Bach recomposed record, my first with DG, which is basically playing synthesizers in big... (laughs) big recording studios and recording them as if they are acoustic instruments. And the sounds interact, you know, all the kind of sound waves and everything interact with all the other sounds and they stop being analog synthesizers and they become kind of acoustic synthesizers. You know, they you play them differently, the sound changes. And one of the elements of that is, you know, you end up opening yourself to car horns or, you know, ambulances going past. Yeah, the opening of I think it's over the last single that came out before the record was released at the very beginning there's a i think it's like an articulated lorry or something some big kind of <laughs> which happens to be you, you
0: get that on some recordings it's usually the the, the artist's tummy or yeah. something <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, it happened to be in the same key or you know a kind of <laughs> consonant frequency and and we're like it's oh, really cool <laughs>
0: You like that. I know you 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 like it to be real and of course you've recorded a patina in Dolby Atmo. and that mm-hmm. that is something so fascinating for now and as a horn player we have a horror of mistakes and the you know and the and, and splits and splats sure. and um and how it really sounds and to be honest I wouldn't want to put my horn sound out there how it sounds in my ear you know That's so really then Dolby surround it really it's very hard to judge your sound when it's right next yeah. to you, you know you're always sending people out into the hall or with my students, you know, they play and I go out and listen to them. So that's why I was really fascinated to to hear you yeah. talk about wanting the cello, wanting that scraping and the rosin and the yeah. bow and the and the fingers. As a horn player, I don't think I would want that. But that's what the Dolby Atmo does for you, isn't well, it's, it? Well, it's
1: it's like another ingredient, it's another part of that sort of storytelling. And with the you know, wanting to bring the, the listener kind of closer. It it really, it's sort of come about through, you know, listening. I, I like to try and treat, as sort of pretentious as it sounds, but to treat the cello more like a vocal recording rather than like a cello recording. Just because the way, you know, the kind of cultural overheads that go along with a cello recording, just the way it, it is expected to sound is basically unchanged since, you know, the Jacqueline Dupre... or or earlier, you know, these sort of seminal cello recordings, that is the expectation of a cello sound. But it's not all that a cello can do. I've always wanted to to try and think of, you know, when you're creating a sound, Or I have had my cello set up with gut strings to get this kind of gritty, textury thing. And it's more thinking like plosives and consonants and sibilants and and all these sort of vocal techniques that, that allow you, when you're listening to a singer... Or somebody speaking, that you recognize their accent. You know, everyone has an identify- you know, you think if, if Paul McCartney is singing a song on the radio, it is instantly identifiably Paul McCartney. And part of that is the makeup of his voice, and a large portion of that is his diction. And you think, yeah, you can kind of recognize singers. Well, why can't we? I mean, obviously sometimes you can recognise players, but I thought, well, what if what if we followed through with that? And yeah, and, and I just sort of got really interested in, in that sort of thread of of thinking more of it as a vocal, more of us as kind of like lyrical storytelling rather than just playing a cello line and then thinking, well what what is this trying to say and how is it trying to say it? And with with Atmos, really, you know, the way I like to think of this kind of spatial audio is it it allows me as the producer, as the creator of this to really kind of control that listening environment, so you, know, you spend all this time when you're writing for an orchestra or whatever, you know, orchestrating and positioning. You know, you, th- you think about whether it's horn one or horn three, or whether it's you know who who's playing it, where it falls in the in the violin section, where you know where you place the double basses. Are you going to have them in the centre? You going to have them off to the right, and then it sort of always feels to me, like a slight sort of, not admission of delegation of responsibilities, but then it kind of gets packaged off and sent away. Whereas this is like, where in the room does this sound happen? And how can that kind of physicality help you like do what you're doing already? So, you know, if you think of, you're standing on a street and an ambulance drives past you and and you hear that kind of Doppler effect, you hear it going,
0: you're... That sounds like my warm-up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, you hear your brain interprets that. You understand that it means it's going from there to there. You can't see it, but you, you know that it is travelling a distance. And so rather than just make, you know, dynamics aren't just about things getting louder or quieter, you, you can do it with position. And with Atmos, you can do that. You can, you can make something feel quieter by by moving it away and, and there's some really and I'm biased, but there's some very special moments for me on this record where you sort of you hear it, you feel the the whatever it is, the string section getting quieter, but it's not actually getting quieter until much, much later in the in the process. And it's this sort of perception versus reality thing again you know you think of the kind of the instagram post you know the beautiful immaculate whatever it is and then kind of chaos behind (laughs) you know behind camera but i love this idea that we live with this kind of perceived perfection and and that's fine that you know in a sense that makes it real you know that that the instagram life is real but I, i really wanted to on top of having all this kind of beautifully recorded Stuff underneath it all is this kind of bed of like car noise or. super rumbly where, do you,
0: where would you tell your listeners to look out for? Because I'm thinking now just spontaneously schema, mm. um, the big string number, yeah. where you're sort of introducing us to the world of your amazing string ensemble. And I, I could sort of feel it pass me by, you mm. know, it's sort of like, uh, oh yeah, we're going in here. Oh no, we're going in here. I, I have no idea if I listened to it the right way or not. But it's not just the strings. You have this, it's just like a different world. I don't know. I felt that that, that was very well suited to the, to the Atmos. But there's so many. What what would you tell yeah. us to look out for?
1: So if you're listening in Atmos actually Schema is a really good track for that because what's happening there is um, um, I'm doing I'm doing, doing a, thumb- a,
0: a thumbs up <laughs> yay I got it right. It's
1: basically <laughs> the, the reverbs that we used you know this can introduce your, your horn playing fraternity and sorority to vocoding but the reverbs vocoded and the idea of that was the string players are actually just playing something very simple. There are twelve of them, so it's it's three string quartets playing at once, and we created these reverbs, and then controlled the reverbs
0: to have. It sounds terribly complicated. It does sound really complicated. I'm the, saying that it loud, the, 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 it's like really, really stupid. But, it sounds it sounds very complicated, but mm. but basically, from my brain, I just need to understand the strings come and they record their stuff, and you do all the rest after or do you do it while they're there? Actually I was
1: doing it while they were there, but they oh they didn't hear
0: it. They didn't know it. <laughs> yeah.
1: But but basically it's it's like if you imagine the idea really was that the the room, the reverb of the, the space that they're in had a like a second lens, like a like a second opinion so that their the strings might be playing for example a C major chord. But the reverb is being affected to have a, like an F major first inversion.
0: Now, you see, I didn't hear that, well, it's, it's, <laughs> but I will go back and listen well, to it. <laughs>
1: so the stereo mixes that you will have listened to, you know, I'm really proud of them. They they do have this sense of space and this sort of thing. But in the, in the spatial mixes, the, the Atmos mixes, it's physically a separate space. So the these kind of opinion reverbs, as, as I think we called them, are in the ceiling so they are they, f- they literally float above you and you get this moment where they the strings will play a chord and it's a kind of cathartic end of a phrase and then these little kind of blippy reverby bubble things kind of go <laughs> in the background you know with this stuff and I'm never sure how important it is to explain. How that stuff is done.
0: Would you prefer that we just sit there and listen and just take it all in and not try and analyse it? Because you've yeah. got quite an analytical mind. I think, but
1: I think so. I mean, I think you know. I don't think there are too many people that turn up for you know they don't turn up to the Philharmonie and think, wow, the the tension gauge on those violins is just on point, <laughs> you know. Or, wow, the tube length, that horn is... Just, you know, i better sit on row 14 because, the, you know, the, the low-end frequencies will develop at the right rate for the height of the room. You know, I think it is OK to just sit and listen to these things. And I don't think it's important. I enjoy talking about this stuff because I'm kind of passionate about it and I enjoy it as a creative tool.
0: The word nerd comes to mind, <laughs> but said with a lot of love. <laughs> Thanks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I prefer misspent childhood. No, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I've never really felt that drawn to telling people with this sort of instrumental music. It's we're always sort of encouraged to tell everyone what it's about and the story behind yeah. it. It's like, well,
0: that's it's also my job to ask yeah. about it. But actually, now you are saying that we could just talk about the weather, like true yeah, Brits,
1: exactly. But you know, <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a really interesting one that you know, if you've got lyrically led music you tend not to have to talk about this stuff that sort of presupposes that the lyric is the beginning and the end of the the narrative which is almost certainly not the case so I quite like that sort of you know using these elements these sort of whether they're computerized actually on this record it's probably a 50 50 split between old crackly analog electronics and some quite clever computer stuff but you know I think treating them all as sort of equal partners with you know the cello is in itself a very evolved piece of technology which allows me as a cellist or the horn as you as a horn player to communicate through it well it's no different with any of this you know software or hardware it all does the same thing it might look intimidating because it's got lots of buttons and bells and whatever lights on it. But you know, that's what a piano looks like to someone who can't play a piano.
0: But how did you get, sorry to interrupt, Ah, but I just thought of a really good question. So I want to get it in there. (laughs) (laughs) How did, well, you were a little four-year-old cellist. yeah, And you you loved the cello. You did all your scales. You did all your grade eights and everything that we musicians, young musicians do in England. Youth orchestras, I assume. And then you went to Royal Academy. But when did this fascination start with actually changing the sound you were making? Because I spent all my student years trying to improve the sound I was making and it never occurred to me to vocode it. Yeah. That just wasn't the way I thought. Yeah. I was just happy to get a note. Yeah. You know, we're, we're always happy when we get a note. <laughs> um, and the thought, the, the, the thought of then destroying that perfect note once we've got it is horrifying. Yeah. Um, but where, where did this start? Because it's, it's part of what you do. You know, I said at the beginning, you're so multifaceted. Mm. It's, it's just you have your cello and that's your, your soul. That's, that's mm. how you make your music and, and that's how you speak. Through. But you're also speaking through these incredibly complex complicated and impressive synthesizers, wasps, uh, bimps and whatever they're all called. I learned a lot, I tell you, from your album. But where did this start? How? Why, was it not enough for you just to play beautiful cello notes?
1: So, well, actually, I do know where it started. It started when I was probably about 13, 12 or 13. And, you know, like you say, you spend all your time doing your scales, your studies, your whatever else you know Haydn's and Bach and all this amazing you know obviously hugely spoiled as a cellist you know got the most amazing repertoire and you, but you know on the other side I did all the youth orchestry things but I didn't go to a like a music school I went to a kind of quite academic boys school and you know you hear all these other sounds and all this other stuff you know so my the other side of my life you know one side is sort of the beautiful cello thing and, you, you know, you create the beautiful cello sound and you learn to do nice bow changes and, you know, your scales in different positions and all this stuff. And on the other hand, hearing all these other sounds on, on the radio or pop music, rock music, whatever it is, and thinking, well, that's also, you know, playing the cello as a 13-year-old boy is not necessarily the coolest thing you can do. You know, but you acknowledge that they're both in the same world, you know, they're neither of them are playing rugby. They're both making music. So what's the commonality between them? And how can my interest and skill set over here work over here? And I and my, my brother's a guitarist actually in the in the West End in London. And so he always had you know guitar pedals and amplifiers and things at home. Well, what if I could use my bits, which at the time was just a cello, and then use his bits at the time was, you know, whatever, other toys, he's older than I am, and sort of started to put them together and got really interested in, in that sort of sound. And then I was always really interested in composition and, you know, Britain. I remember hearing Charles Merck doing um, all three Britain cello suites when I was probably around that sort of age at the Edinburgh Festival. I grew up in Edinburgh and then sort of working backwards from Britain, you know, Fun fact, Britain was the first person to reverse a cymbal sound. Uh, not You've that, heard it first not, on the
0: Deutsche Grammophon International not, Podcast. Not, I did not do that.
1: It, allegedly it <laughs> was the Beatles. It's not the Beatles. It was actually Benjamin Britten. But that sort of thing, I got really interested in, you know, he was working, you know, a lot of like the the third Britain cello suite, a lot of it's about sort of imitating like a Russian choir. And that sort of thought process of, well, actually one thing, the cello as a... What I think, if it was a synthesizer, you would call it like a duophonic synthesizer. You can kind of do two things at once, but you do it by splitting. Like it's, it's all a bit of an illusion, and I love that idea of the thinking of our kind of core instrument, like the cello or the horn, like an interface, right? Or like a like a synthesizer that you can through it you create different sounds, different colors, you know, and whether you're trying to sound like a flute or sound like a uh, a choir or whatever it is and and these Britain's cello suites really seem to have that range and then I got really interested in kind of going sort of either side of Britain but Britain was the kind of central point because he'd written so much brilliant cello music <laughs> and then yeah I think I think sort of I then I you know then sort of discovered the Kronos Quartet and I emailed because you know the glory days of Whenever that was, 20 years ago, I suppose, I emailed David Harrington from the Kronos Quartet through their website and said, I'm, you know, like super obnoxious email. I'm a 13 year old cellist. I really like music, you know, blah, what's, the, what's the story kind of thing. And bless him, he wrote back and he said, oh, send me your address. When I was your age, the piece that changed my life was Black Angels by George Crumb." And then we started this sort of mini dialogue. And then I got really into the Cronos Quartet and they were doing all this stuff with like, whether it was actually with electronics or with pre-recorded stuff. And then the sort of Steve Reich, Philip Clark, you know, that kind of New York school of respectable classical music, imitating degraded tape problems, you know, like loop music, you know, with cells that decay or they get shorter and they're shorter and, you know, all the, this stuff got really exciting to me. And then, you know, sort of thought, well, where's all this music for cello and electronics? And at the time... There
0: wasn't any, Well, was there, there isn't there? very much. There, there, no, there, there, there isn't. I mean, people play on electronic cellos, but yeah, that's not the same. It's
1: not the same. And it's not, you know, doing real cello music on an electric cello does not make it anything other than a bit louder and a little less... Good sound by
0: the way what's what's happening on the podcast is what happens in Peter Gregson's music when he records outside sounds I can hear your kids yeah <laughs> Yeah. but it's, it fits very well to the theme of it's, today. It's
1: authentic to my narrative as an artist.
0: Absolutely absolutely
1: um,
0: But yeah so you this creating a new cello world yeah. is actually something that's been very inspiring and I mean who knows you may be creating a whole army of, of cellists who decide to recreate their sounds Whoa. because when you brought the Bach album out mm. that was actually quite cheeky you know no one had <laughs> dared to go there I mean everyone has played the Bach suites I've played them on the horn every, everyone plays the Bach suites but then suddenly to do what you did uh, before I, I heard the album I was like oh yeah he's probably put a beat to it or something mm. but when I heard it it was like wow that it was really something new well with with the
1: uh, recomposed I sort of wanted to think of it like you know these I've, I've read something about them there's a book I can't remember what it's called sacred manuscripts or something and it, and it talked about these pillars of culture as sculptures immovable objects Right. And, and I thought, well, that doesn't sit well somehow because people still find their own voice through them. You know, it's not immovable. It might be vast, but it's not something that's obstructive and it's not going to hurt you if it falls over. But the other way of looking at a sculpture is, you know, you and I sort of came to this point with the, the Bach Suites, which was I wanted to shine a light on the on the kind of crevices or the dark side of the moon, you know, and think of them more like sculptures in that as you turn them around, the light hits them from different angles and you see new angles, new crevices, new cracks and whatever appears. I always thought that was quite an appealing thing. So it was more like, wasn't so much as a chillistic interpretation, it was more of a bringing a kind of my... Compositional aesthetic lens to it. Or something. I mean, I'm really proud of of that record.
0: So you should be. Really, uh,
1: it, it was largely met with positivity. Obviously, but there are
0: always a few purists that say, "How dare he!"
1: And and you know yeah. what? The way I kind of got to sleep at night when I was doing that was I could play them properly, and the same people would still be pissed off. You know, there's for for a certain kind of purist, there is never going to be anything that is better than Casals, Fournier, whoever it is, whatever it is. I thought, you know, as long as you do something with sort of integrity and do it in a way that isn't, you know, I'm not for a second saying this is in any way improving or, you know, it was purely as a respect thing. Bach is a very, very big boy. You can do just about anything and the integrity of his music is still there. You know, you can add this, you can take away that, and it's still impeccably structured, you know, like a building.
0: And who knows, you might be inspiring 13-year-old cellists like yourself who maybe think they're not cool because they play the cello, but then they hear the Bach and they think, wow, if I practice my Bach suites, I could, you know, I could do something crazy with them, and it's okay. And it's okay. I think it's that
1: permission that... You know, so so just quickly jumping back, so basically, when I was thirteen or fourteen, I was then, as you do as as we all do, I was on at the I was on a cello course in my summer holidays, and I met a guy who would then go on to be my cello teacher at the Royal Academy called Philip Shepherd. I remember vividly he said to me at the times, so I said, "Well, you know, because he did a lot and still does a lot of." interesting kind of writing and stuff. With
0: Didn't he do all the uh, Olympic fanfares That's or something? Right. Yeah, for yeah, the, yeah. yeah. I was in youth orchestra with Philip. That's making me feel very Wait. old now, but uh, not that Philip's old, but...
1: Uh, <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, so, so I remember him saying to me, he said, well, you know, if, if music you want doesn't exist, then you should go away and write it. And I thought, yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll do that. And I still kind of stick to that. So I then went to study with him at the Royal Academy and I ended up doing a lot of kind of assisting work with him and arranging and orchestrating and sort of bits while I was a student um, and a bit beyond. And yeah, so.
0: The perfect teacher for you. Yeah. I absolutely love that quote. If the music you love doesn't exist, you have to go and write it. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And the Bachs really were a big success. And it brought you this whole nother realm of of not fame is a silly word, but you know what? People were paying attention to your music and you got some really good gigs. I must say I did. <laughs> you got some really good yeah. gigs um, with the film music and you know when I read that it was your Bach in the Bridgerton scene <laughs> I knew exactly which scene that was because I remember hearing it and thinking because you know you don't sometimes if you're watching something well often you don't really
1: yeah.
0: take much notice of the music going on you're just enjoying the moment and of course that moment you know the love scene when they're yeah. dancing but I remember thinking oh Bach how lovely and it was you yeah. <laughs> so hats, hats off to you
1: yeah no it's <laughs> (laughs) It's um, yeah, we had you know lots of really amazing kind of touring opportunities with that. Obviously pre-COVID, really brilliant. You know, did it all over the world actually, and and that was really exciting. Yeah, it's been synced into hundreds of things now. I mean, films. I mean, speaking as as you can see, a sort of paragon of fashion, fashion shows. (laughs) You know, brands, films, got to get you on the catwalk. Yeah, exactly. Get my get my swish on. Yeah, so it's it's been all over the place, which is. Which is great. And um,
0: and I, I have a question. Do you have to play the video games to write the music for them? Because Boundless, which was PlayStation 4, I think, my godchildren go crazy for all that. Did you have to learn how to play them or did you just write the music? I
1: just wrote the music. Um, the game was still being developed while I was writing. So actually in the game, there is just over 12 hours of music, if you would believe. Um,
0: I hope you're paid by minute.
1: <laughs> you actually vaguely <paid> <laughs> are. But it's just like a never-ending thing. But the, the music in games often is called responsive music. So, you know, if you think of these these books, if you think back to when you were you know young, you're reading a book and you're like, Billy goes to the shops, do you want him to go in or do you want him to go to the next shop? If you want him to go in, turn to page seven. If you want him to go to the next, you know, or whatever. Game music is like that, that when you're writing it, you don't know, you, you and I could be playing the same game, but you don't know if you're going to turn left or turn right. And the implications that brings, unlike a film or a TV show where it's a linear narrative. So you have to write music that can kind of thread and interweave with itself, but change depending on what the player does. And there are all sorts of kind of sophisticated, clever things. It's far beyond my pay grade. But you you basically you get this software, which is rather wise, and you can kind of Test what's going to happen. So if you're writing walking music, you know, just for like background, like dum dumpty, dumpty dumpty dum and then suddenly it's got to go into fighting music, you can practice the transitions. So you you know, you can you write it and then you kind of load it all up and you can say, right now, fight, <laughs> and you can see if it works. And you know, because I didn't want it to be all at like the, the easy way to do this sort of thing is to make everything at 60 BPM and then fast is 120 BPM and and then you can just kind of put the two on top of each other and it'll all work. We didn't really want that. So the quick answer is no, I have subsequent, I'm not a big game player, but you know, you kind of get sent little videos of the, the gameplay and the visuals and stuff.
0: Composing has come a long way since feather quill and parchment. Yeah. Uh, it I mean, really it's, has. It's, it's a
1: lot of it is now, you <laughs> yeah. know, how the music interacts in in those spaces. But again, you know, a lot of church music is timed. I think, you know, to how long is the procession of the of the aisle? What is the decay from the organ to the to the chancel? All that stuff. And you think, well, actually this stuff has existed forever. You know, talis, right, like Speminalium, like there's this brilliant point, you know, 40-part motet. All of the voices, so the, the argument is that they were... The singers start at the back of such Palace, which was a, a hexagon. They would all process around the sides, da, 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 and in sort of ancient longs or bars now, uh, all of the singers are singing at bar 40, So the argument is that by that point, all 40 singers would have processed into their kind of micro choirs on each of the eight sides of the wall well that's that's
0: like the Thomas Tallis video game yeah. if they'd gone the other way or gone through another door he would have had to, yeah, exactly. had to do an alternative <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: fascinating Peter I could go on for hours and hours with this we'll have to do another 10 podcasts yeah. uh, together but um, congrats on the album Thank on you. Patina and also I love the fact you described it as a, as a tapas you know it's not a big meat and potatoes yeah. where you you know you have <laughs> one and then you finish at the end it's all these these incredible little um, well not so little I mean they're, they're long Tracks, but everyone is so different, mm. and uh, I especially love the lullaby for your daughter. That was very touching. It was a nice moment of, of of sort of real calm, and 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 uh, it was beautiful. Oh, and you you. and uh, as a, as a mere horn player, I I've learned a lot from your music, and I <laughs> will continue being a fan and and follow what you do next. And I hope you'll come back on the podcast. Oh, I'd
1: love to. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks for having me.
0: You have a little horn challenge in in the old days pre COVID. I would make my guests play my horn and see what would come out. Of course, we can't do that. But my horn challenge to you is put a horn in some of your music. I want to be vocoded. All right. <laughs> Challenge accepted. That's my challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Gregson, thank you so much for joining us on the international podcast for Deutsche Grammophone today. And to all our dear listeners, I hope you enjoy the album too and that you can listen however you want. Right, Peter? You can listen in spatial sound. You can listen in normal stereo sound. But we'd love to hear from you what your listening experience is like, because uh, it's always great to get feedback, isn't it? Yes.
1: Yeah, fantastic.
0: Thank you so much. Goodbye, Peter. See you again very soon in Berlin. And dear listeners, see you next time on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast. Bye-bye. Oh, one last thing. If you enjoyed this podcast with Peter and want to stay up to date with future episodes and also listen to some of the fabulous past episodes, do subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts from. I'm Sarah Willis. That was Peter Gregson. See you next month on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series.